The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of the fourth night and morning. On the fourth night, our narrator met Nastenka at the spot where he had seen her that first time, and turning to him, she asked, clutching the railing anxiously, if he had brought the letter. When he told her there was no letter, she turned pale at the shattering of her last hope. She dropped her eyes, struggled with her emotion, and then burst into tears. Between her sobs, she groped for an explanation, first accusing the lodger of inhuman cruelty, then wondering whether she had said the wrong thing in her letter, then consoling herself that he must never have received the letter at all, and finally speculating that perhaps someone had spoken ill of her to him. Our narrator struggled to calm her and vowed again to go to him in her name. Taking him by the hand, she said that he, the dreamer, would never have done this to her, that he would have taken care of her. Her affectionate, grateful words tortured him, and he broke, speaking at last what was surging in his heart. He felt a fleeting guilt, afraid that in declaring his love he was putting his own feelings first, before hers. But though he could not help speaking his love, he knew, too, that he could not hurt her in any way. She encouraged him to speak his feelings, and he told her that for a moment he thought perhaps she had ceased loving the lodger. If she had, he was certain he would have succeeded in making her love him. And if he had succeeded, he would have loved her so that she would feel every minute that at her side was beating a grateful heart. Nastenka chided herself for her insensitivity in failing to see how deeply he loved her, telling herself that the lodger had been laughing at her, while he, the dreamer, had been by her side weeping with her. She declared that she loved him. Then she laid her head upon his bosom and sobbed. When she could recover herself, she called her emotion weakness and again endeavored to convince herself that the lodger despised and had been cruel to her, and even questioned whether her own love had all been a mistake and a delusion. Then she told the dreamer that if he could love her enough to drive her old feeling from her heart, if he could love her always as he did then, her love would at last be worthy of his, and she offered him her hand. The dreamer received her words with breathless sobs of happiness, and when Nastenka asked that they please not speak another word about it, they talked instead about their future, where they would live, when they would move, who would join them. In the midst of their delirious chatter, Nastenka stopped and stood mute, her hand trembling in his. A young man passing by stopped and looked at them intensely. It was he. She cried out, started, tore herself out of the dreamer's hands, and rushed to meet him, flinging herself into his arms. In a flash she was back again, and threw her arms around the dreamer, giving him a warm and tender kiss. Then she rushed back to the lodger again, took his hand, 
drew him after her, and the two vanished from sight. The next day, Matrona brought a letter. It was from Nastenka, and she began by begging his forgiveness. She said she still loved him, lamented that she could not love them both, promised to treasure his memory, and thanked him for the generosity of his love, a love that meant she knew he would forget the wrong she had done him. She said that the next week she was to be married, that he had always loved her and never forgotten her, and she expressed a longing for the two of them to meet. He read the letter over and over again, tears gushing to his eyes. All at once his future flashed before him, Matrona old and wrinkled, the room dingy and thick with cobwebs, the surrounding houses cracked and peeling. And yet he would not begrudge Nastenka a moment of her bliss, would not poison her heart with remorse or force it to throb with anguish. He wished her all the blessings of that untroubled happiness which she had, for a moment, given to him. For, he concluded, a moment of happiness was not too little for the whole of a man's life. The next of my posts was called First Love. In an earlier post, I mentioned that to embrace the true spirit and meaning of this story, you would have to believe wholeheartedly in the truth of Nastenka's love, of both her love for the dreamer and, still more important, of her love for the lodger. She did love the dreamer, and what is so painful for us as readers is that we bear witness to their love and to his loss. But her heart was not hers to give. It already belonged to another. It is only when she suffers the crushing doubt of the lodger's love for her that she entertains the thought, even for a moment, that she could love another. But so much about even that moment makes it clear that it cannot work, that she is trying to force a faithlessness in her heart that she cannot feel. Consider the cadence of her confession of love for the dreamer after he declares his love for her. She gets up quickly and dries her eyes with a handkerchief. She says, I will tell you something. If he has forsaken me now, if he has forgotten me, though I still love him, I do not want to deceive you. But listen, answer me. If I were to love you, for instance, that is, if I only... And then, after still more anxious and hesitating speech, she says she loves him. Even then, she says she still loves the lodger, but says in the words of one making an unmistakable effort at self-deception, I shall get over it. I cannot fail to get over it. I am getting over it. Then she weeps bitterly, assuring him that she will be over it in a moment, and finally plucks up courage to speak. She then says in a weak and quavering voice that she does not love the lodger, because he has despised and been laughing at her. She expresses doubts about the sincerity of her own love, calling it a mistake and a delusion. However, not only does all this have the air of one trying desperately to convince herself, 
it is premised on the notion that she was betrayed by him, a notion of which she later seems to have been disabused. She offers the dreamer her hand, but when he accepts it with grateful happiness, she insists that they speak no more of love. Then, in perhaps the most revealing gesture of all, she suggests that he come to live in the open apartment in her grandmother's house, declaring that he will be her lodger. Only when he runs with this notion, saying that they will go to see the barber of Seville, does she hesitate, seeming to realize the futility of her effort to have him take the place of the lodger in her heart. She does love the dreamer, and she wants to give herself over to that love, but she can't. Her pure and trusting heart had been given to her first love, so completely that even if he had forgotten and betrayed her, it is questionable whether she could have ever given her heart to another. So, when she sees the lodger and he calls to her, it is without a moment's hesitation that she flings herself into his arms. Dostoevsky wouldn't want us to look at her love with cynical skepticism. He wants us to believe in her love, and, with the dreamer's generosity of heart, to be happy for her. The last of my posts was called The Theme. I want to share some final thoughts about what I think this story means, and what it means to me. In telling Nastenka his history, our narrator says that the dreamer, quote, desires nothing because he is superior to all desire, because he has everything, because he is satiated, because he is the artist of his own life, unquote. And yet, quote, he thinks that this is a poor, pitiful life, not foreseeing that for him too, maybe, sometime the mournful hour may strike, when for one day of that pitiful life, he would give all his years of fantasy. Unquote. This, says William Leatherbarrow in his introduction to White Knights, is the hero's dilemma. Quote, Hopelessly alienated from and afraid of life, he retreats into dreams. But he acknowledges the tenuousness of such dreams, which sooner or later must fade in the face of the implacable reality of life itself. Unquote. For our narrator, that mournful hour did strike, and he forswore his dreams, knowing he could never recover them again, for one heartbreaking moment with Nastenka in reality. He is explicit and unequivocal about his own answer to the dilemma. My God, a whole moment of happiness. Is that too little for the whole of a man's life? I take the theme to be a variation on the immortal line from Tennyson, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." Something like, "'Tis better to have lived and lost than never to have lived at all." Dreams of happiness fade inevitably. But the promise, or at the very least the recollection of happiness in reality, lives forever. One thing I dearly loved about this story is that it simultaneously condemns a life of only dreams, while, I believe, 
heartily defending the character of the dreamer. As I said from the outset, he is a dreamer because he is an idealist, because he is morally ambitious, because he has aspirations of grandeur, and because he feels alienated from a world in which he believes these dreams cannot be achieved. He was wrong to give himself up only to dreams, but it was all these features of his identity as a dreamer that allowed him to live even a moment of such profound bliss in reality. The conventional prosaic men around him would never have been spiritually primed for the happiness this moment afforded. But our dreamer learns that even if his ambitions are not achievable in any secure and lasting way, even if foregoing his life of dreams means facing the grimness of everyday reality, it is worth it. Through his encounter with Nastenka, he discovers that he would happily trade all his shadowy castles in the sky for a single moment of sunlit joy on earth. I love this story because there are often times that I, like many of you, I feel sure, feel like a dreamer, alienated from the world around me, and suffering the pain of impossible or thwarted dreams. In this story, I find a voice for the dreamer in me, but also a stirring reminder of the profound and lasting joy to be found in dreams achieved, even for the most fleeting of moments. There's so much more that could be said about this story, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, or accounts of how it impacted you. I hope you, too, were stirred by it, and I hope it will motivate you to join me in reading Crime and Punishment.